This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott. I'm Jesse. I'm Tamahome. And welcome to the reality show known as SFF Audio. Hmm. <laughs> I don't really like reality shows. Oh, come on. I, I love if our the, podcast. If the Duck Dynasty guys can do it, we can do it. I don't know what that is. All right. <laughs> Good enough. We're going to be talking about the Siberiad, yeah. uh, which is a quote-unquote series of humorous short stories by Stanislaw, Stanislaw Lem. Mm-hmm. Uh, first published in Polish in 1965, and then appear in in English in 1974. Uh, I I I couldn't even I can't imagine this being translated from a foreign language because it's so about words. Yeah, there's so many puns I mean, and there's even some oh, rhyming. Yeah, yeah it, I felt the same way. You know, from the very first story. I mean, the very first line is one day Troll the constructor put together a machine that could create anything starting with the letter N. And then it goes through all the stuff that he makes out of the letter N, including, you know, nothing. Right? Yeah. As him to make Pol- nothing. Negative, yeah. I'm, yeah. And, and Polish is not exactly, it's not like a romance language. It's, it's not exactly the same as English. Yeah. So, that, so I'd you be know, really interested to know what it was, you know. Originally. Either Lem is the genius uh, or the, the translator's a genius or they're both geniuses, <laughs> but... It's amazing, really. I think Lem is a robot. <laughs> Could be. He certainly loves robots, I think. Yeah. Um, I think this is very, I mean, it's kind of very modern. It doesn't feel like it's from the 60s, you know? Yeah, it doesn't at all. It feels timeless because, well, you know, I don't know. Maybe it won't be timeless, but it's it's interesting that a lot of the stuff that he's bringing up are things that we're talking about nowadays. Yeah, I it's it's it I was talking to Steen yesterday about this book and I was saying, you know, it's like he's almost like he's HG Wells and there's no one else around him who writes science fiction and he's just showing off how, you know, full of great ideas he is. And he says, I don't need to develop this much. Someone else will get to it later <laughs> and fill in all the details, but I've got I've got this and look at this joke and this joke sort of sums up the plots of six or seven novels uh, or the premises of six or seven novels. <laughs> and uh, I, I think it's very interesting that it's, it is a, uh, it's called fables, but it's more like fairy tales. You know, they're science fiction, fairy tales, very, very much like fairy tales to me. Yeah. Like yeah, grim, grim stories. Or something. Yes, totally. Mm-hmm. But yeah. notice so those guys like royalty, there's robots and then there's royalty altogether. Yeah, it's everything's a kingdom. I mean, the, yeah. the kingdom of this planet and the the realm and the princess and all that stuff. But it, it's you know Gr- the brothers Grimm. They they were editors. They were not the creators of those stories, right? Mm-hmm. So this is uh, this is a, this guy is a genius. I can't believe how how smart. Uh, I mean, that the, I was quoting on Twitter all this week about uh, little snippets that I just catch and I say, oh, I got it. <laughs> Write that down before I forget it. Um, there was a poem uh, in which he says, write me, uh, he, he's testing the machine, you know, the, the one I mean. He's testing machine in which uh, 
it's supposed to be the greatest writer ever. And his friend Clopatius says, oh, yeah, it's the, it's so great. I want you to write me a poem only using the letter S uh, about a haircut. <laughs> and it has to be, uh, you know, epic and wonderful <laughs> and, uh, you know, deeply heartfelt and tragic. And... And he does it. <laughs> like, holy crap. Yeah. This guy's awesome. And that is one of those things that, like, how how on earth was that translated? I have no idea. Yeah. I have no idea. But I have, I, I, I have the poem here in front of me. Oh, please, please. Oh, read the introduction before that, too, if you could. The introduction the, before that. Um, you know, where, where he, he puts the demands up. Okay. He says, it has to be this, 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 and this. And, and then I think... Okay, uh, have it compose a poem. A poem about a haircut. But lofty, noble, tragic, timeless, full of love, treachery, retribution, quiet heroism in the face of certain doom. Six lines, cleverly rhymed, and every word beginning with the letter S. And why not throw in a full exposition of the general theory of nonlinear automata while you're at it, growled Truro. You can't give it such idiotic, but he didn't finish. A melodious voice filled the hall with the following. Seduced, shaggy Samson snored. She scissored short, sorely shorn, soon shackled slave, Samson sighed, silently scheming, sightlessly seeking, some savage, spectacular suicide. <laughs> like, I can't imagine even, you know, you know how he wrote that, right? He wrote the poem first and then uh, he, 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 he had to, right? He didn't set himself the goal and then... He's, he's like, it's like the guy who, you know, he shoots an arrow at the barn and then he goes in circles where he hit the barn. <laughs> as, uh, there's the target, right? He's, he's got to have done it that way. But I can't even imagine hitting the barn. This is so amazing. Yeah. A poem only using the letter S. It's six lines, right? And, yeah, I, I want to find the, a Polish version of this. So I can just look that up and see what you're it looks like. You're going to have to learn Polish. Like. Yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, just to look at it would be neat. That's amazing. Yeah. Plug it into and Google it, Translate and see if it comes out the same way. <laughs> I, you know what? That might work. Starting with the S's. No. But, uh, you know, beyond it being just a, a really amazing translation of maybe something that's even more amazing or maybe less amazing, who knows? It's it's still, you can see that it, there's not one um, there's not one through line other than his sort of great way of just it's it's a comedy. Yeah. It's a hilarious comedy. Mm-hmm. A comedy about. Yeah, it reminds me of you know like Hitchhiker's Guide. Of, oh, totally. You know, um, which this came before Hitchhiker's Guide, so you know mm-hmm. I'm, I'm assuming now that uh, Douglas Adams had read this. I don't see why he wouldn't have. Huh. But uh, I don't know. I, it's uh, you know he hadn't read Sheckley, and Sheckley mm-hmm. he thought was pretty close to his own writing. Yeah, it's it's, it's the same kind of thing. I mean, he, even in the very first very story, they. You know, he creates a, a robot that says two plus two is seven and mm-hmm. um, insists that it's seven, gets very upset when they're told that it's <laughs> actually four. And, I mean, that just sounds something just right out of Hitchhiker's Guide to me. That's that's the one that, Tam, you were talking about, the Google Doodle, right? That that shows up in the Google Doodle for right. Stanislaus mm-hmm. Lem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's, a, uh, there's another th- sort of, yeah... I mean, it really plays with words in a way that that uh, Douglas Adams did. 
mm-hmm. um, living in the wor- world of words rather than the w- world of, uh, you know, it's not so much about physics as it's about the the wording of physics and yeah. things like perfection and infinity. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, infinite. there's a lot of calculus terms. Mm-hmm. Sure. Like, and abs- and absurd things. Yeah. And things that are absurd, like, um, you know, again, with that story, how the thing gets so upset when it's wrong, you know, and, you know, so it's not perfect. You know, I mean, there, there's so many things that could be read into it, you know, like a a parable or a fable of some kind with this hidden meaning. But you can start assigning meanings to it, you know, and I'm sure it means a lot of different things to whoever reads it kind of a thing. You know, um, it could be, you know, society forcing itself on people as is, you know, uh kind of a metaphor of that or you know just person to person how some people you know won't listen and mm-hmm. insist that something that's untrue is true and they won't listen to you they get upset when you try to tell them differently um so that you know i guess that way is that the definition of a fable i should have looked up what the definition of a fable is i mean I but it seems has... to me that these stories all kind of have points and it's not like at the end it says the moral is no, no. They're, they're constructed in such a way that, you know, after every one that I finished, I, you know, I would think, man, there's something here. <laughs> it's beyond. It's comic. It's hilarious. It's funny. But there's a depth to it that um, I didn't fully understand all the time, but I'm convinced that it's there at every story. Uh, here's a Wikipedia entry on fables. It says, A fable is a literary genre, a succinct fictional story in prose or verse that features animals, mythical creatures, plants, inanimate objects, or forces of nature which are anthropomorphized, given human qualities such as verbal communication, and illustrate to an interpretation of a moral lesson, which may be added explicitly as a pithy maxim. Hmm. Um, So, like, uh, Aesop's fables always has... Uh, there's a little story and then there's a one line uh, illustration of what the story is supposed to give you a feeling about or, you know, like cheaters never prosper or something like that. Yeah. And he doesn't end his stories with that. No, but it feels like it's there. You know, you, it's almost like, well, put your own, you know, line at the end of it. You know, it says the moral of this story is or whatever. Yeah. Um, well, I think, I, I think people would put different, sentences at the end of these stories too i don't think that they're you know i think that they are ambiguous yes and you we need can to get assign, a, assign a lot of different things to it yeah I, i'm i'm curious i i think rabkin has talked about this but i don't even remember how this got on the schedule how did this get on the schedule i said hey let's read that because um, okay yeah because i have first of all i'm really interested in lamb <clears throat> i've been getting i um i read i think it was in wikipedia that he had a friendship with um, Carol Watia, who became Pope John Paul II. Oh. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I actually um, contacted a Lem scholar mm-hmm. who told me that that is uh, an overblown um, or overstated. Um, they, they didn't really have a friendship. They were acquaintances. And, like Poland's a small country. Yeah, yeah. And, and Stanislav Lem would... He he participated. Some of the things that Pope John Paul II did was he he would have these big groups of scientists and things come to the Vatican, and they would have a little conference, and they would talk about various things like evolution or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you know, in an attempt for him to understand 
the current thought and all this stuff. But Lem would participate in that in those things. Hmm. Um, so anyway. Poland's a pretty interesting country when you when you look at its history and and uh, its artists and such. And you know, there's always uprisings going on, and uh, the, the artist community is is it's sort of very tight knit country mm-hmm. um, and it's sort of stuck between much bigger powers. But uh, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me that they, they would know each other, even if they're uh, not, you know, the best of friends, just because um, it is such a tight knit community Yeah, for, for a big country in Europe, you know? <laughs> sure. So anyway, um, so that kind of started my interest and, in, Gotcha. I've been wanting to read lots of Lamb, and I read um, Memoirs Found in a Bathtub, or I listened to it on Audible um, as well. I listened to this one on Audible as well. And How was Memoirs? Uh, Audible gave out, gave me some credits to give out to. Yeah, but and it, I thought it was excellent. So well read. I can't, I can't understand why. Oh yeah, great. I can't understand why Jenny quit this book because it's it's like a um, it it's so easy to read, especially as an audiobook. I, she didn't take the audiobook though, so maybe that's that's why. Yeah, it was it was excellent on audio. Um I, really I, I thought, thought she would like the, the the poetry robot at least. She yeah. she did. She mentioned to me, you know, some of the poetry stuff. You know, the the idea that, you know, poetry is nothing more than you can shove into a you know what what I forget how it was exactly put, but it was something like he put the whole universe into this robot and got drivel. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember what it was that he kicked on to stop getting drivel out of it, but um, he was very disappointed in the first poems that were coming out after giving it all the knowledge in the universe. Um, I thought that was an interesting thing. It's it's also interesting in that this is supposed to be a book of fables. Usually, fables don't include the same characters over and over again. Uh huh. Um, there, you know, it's it's you know, a couple of animals or. Uh, whatever, and then it moves on to another pair of animals. And, you know, when you've got the fox in one story and then, you know, six or seven chapters later, you've got a different fox, mm-hmm. it's probably a different fox. It's not, it's it's probably not, doesn't have to be the same fox. Well, that's cool. But in this case, we've got a, a couple of robots that sort of uh, are the main characters. And it's kind of, I mean, if, if you look at it as a novel um, and, that way, it's sort of unclear what order things are supposed to be in, uh, but or even what time this is supposed to be happening. Is it the distant past, the distant future? Or I think we're explicitly referenced in here, right? Human beings, yeah. as a footnote, mm-hmm. mostly harmless sort of thing. <laughs> pale faces. Yeah, yes. pale faces. That's that's funny. Mostly harmless sort of thing. That's a perfect way to put it. Yeah. There's not not of major interest, right? <laughs> Except for that to that princess in that last story, right? Squishy, muddy, pale face. She wanted to marry one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, uh, that's that's the that's the part I I had sort of a chuckling fit uh, at like three o'clock in the morning. I got up to brush my teeth. I realized I woke up and I said, "My mouth is terrible." I had fallen asleep without brushing my teeth, so I go and I brush my teeth and I I put the audiobook on. And, uh, the quote, uh, it just was, you know, it was doing the story and, and then, um, I'm in the middle of this scene, uh, where the princess, what's her name? Um, Miamalak? Is that her? No, no, Miamalak is the robot. 
That was uh, his human name. Oh, Ferex. Ferex is the, the princess, Prince Ferex right? and the Princess Crystal. Crystal. Okay, got it. Okay, here we go. Um, so she's uh, she wants to be convinced that he's really a uh, human, or at least a uh, biological. Because is she a biological? I don't think she is. No, she's a robot. She's everybody's a robot mm-hmm. around here, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but she needs to marry a biological. Um, so there's just some other guy trying to get her an actual biological, but this guy has been sent in to, uh, pretend to be a biological and he's, he's being quizzed to see if he's a suitable suitor. And, uh, she says, tell me who, who you tell me you who call yourself Mimalak, the pale face, what do you, do, what do you and your brothers do during the day? Oh, princess, said Ferex. In the morning, they wet themselves in the clear water, pouring it upon their limbs, as well as into their interiors, for this affords them pleasure. <laughs> Afterwards, they walk to and fro in a fluid and undulating way, and they slush and they slurp, and when anything grieves them, they palpitate, and salty water streams from their eyes. And when anything cheers them, they palpitate and hiccup, but their eyes remain relatively dry. And we call it the wet, palpitating weeping and the dry laughter. <laughs> and it is as, as you say, said the princess, and you and your brothers share enthusiasm for water. Oh, if it is as you say, uh, I will have you thrown into my lake that you may enjoy it to your fill. And also I will have them weigh your legs with lead to keep you from bobbing up. Your majesty, replied Ferex, as the sage has taught him. If you do this, I must perish, for though there is water within us, it cannot be immediately outside us for longer than a minute or two. Otherwise, we recite the words blub, 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 which signifies the last farewell to life. <laughs> but tell me, Mimalak, asked the princess, how do you furnish yourself with such energy to walk to and fro, to squish and to slurp, to shake and to sway? Princess, replied the Ferex, there, were, there well, where I dwell, and the other places, pale faces besides the hairless variety, pale faces that travel predominantly on all fours. He's explaining what they what they eat. Uh, these these we perforate until they expire, <laughs> and we steam and bake their remains and chop and slice. After which we incorporate their corporeality, corporeality into our own. We know three hundred and seventy six distinct methods of murdering. 28,597 distinct methods of preparing the corpses and stuffing of those bodies into our bodies through an aperture called the mouth, (laughs) which provides us with no end of enjoyment. Indeed, the art of preparation of corpses is more esteemed among us than astronautics and is termed gastronautics or gastronomy, which, however, has nothing to do with astronomy. And then uh, this is the part that I couldn't stop laughing about. Does this mean that Does this mean, then, that you play at being cemeteries, making of yourselves the very coffins that hold your four-legged brethren? The question was dangerously loaded, but Ferex, instructed by the sage, answered thus. Uh, I just, I, I'm putting the, I'm a cemetery, and I put, I put dead bodies into myself. Oh, my God. Oh, that's funny. That's crazy. I found... Go ahead. Sorry? I resemble that remark. <laughs> it's true. I mean, this is they're not really about robots, right? They're all about 
about people and looking at the way, weird way we do things. I mean, it's it's an alien perspective. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I found um, that, you know, the poet robot? Yes. The part where it says, um, you know, that he put the whole universe in there and the, what the solution was to make it start doing good poetry. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to read that. Go for it. He says, um, okay, uh, let's see, where should I start here? Okay, troll adjusted, modulated, expostulated, disconnected, ran checks, reconnected, reset, did everything he could think of. And the machine presented him with a poem that made him thank heaven Klopashus wasn't there to laugh. Imagine simulating the whole universe from scratch, not to mention civilization in every particular, and to end up with such dreadful doggerel. Troll put in six cliché filters, but they snapped like matches. He had to make them out of pure corundrum, corundum steel. This seemed to work, so he jacked the semanticity all the, up all the way, plugged in an alternating rhyme generator, which nearly ruined everything, since the machine resolved to become a missionary among destitute tribes on far-flung planets. But at the very last minute, just as he was ready to give up and take a hammer to it, Churl was struck by an inspiration. Tossing out all the logic circuits, he replaced them with self-regulating, egocentripetal narcissisters. <laughs> the machine simpered a little, whimpered a little, laughed bitterly, complained of an awful pain on its third floor, and said <laughs> that in general it was fed up through life, was, oh, though life was beautiful, but men were such beasts and how sorry they'd all be when it was dead and gone. <laughs> then it asked for pen and paper. Troll sighed with relief, switched it off, and went to bed. That's Lem describing himself. Yeah? Yeah. Maybe. Men are such beasts, but we'll be <laughs> sad when they're all gone. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, that's I mean that's so, I mean, gosh. Again, you know, reminded me just like Hitchhikers. Um, you know, I mean, really I, kind I, of the same wherever Hitchhikers came yeah, from, this game. I want to get a copy of this paper as a paper book. Tam, do you have one? I have one from the library. It, oh. it has illustrations, too. Yeah, yeah um, I think this is a, a really good book to have, like, so you can pick up and re- read just, like, sections for, you know, a whole a fable. Because as an audiobook, you know, it's back to back to back to back to back. And mm-hmm. um, it, it was hard to keep track of what, what story we're in at any given point. That's one of the things audiobooks are not good at, uh, is short story collections, especially on Audible. But... I'm not sure that, I mean, this is more like a novel than it is a short story collection, but even so, I think this is one of those ones where you, you really do want to have a copy. Uh, so yeah, can, it's, it's neat to have a copy, but I do, I do think the audiobook yeah. works really well. Oh, I, yeah. I would not, if, if I was doing it again, though, I would not listen to it back to back to back. I'd listen to a story, I and think then I'd right. move on somewhere else, and I'd listen to another one. Yeah. yeah. And kudos to the narrator. I mean, this is really tough, all those names. Oh. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he did a great did job. Too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm not sure who, you know, there's sort of voices I've heard uh, from, I don't know, cartoon characters or something. <laughs> um, but, yeah, there's a, this was must have been a ton of work. I mean, it's not like, um, for the most part, it's just, you know, the two guys, the two robots and, and whatever situation it is. But every once in a while, it gets really confusing with the, uh, with the embedded stories and, um, you know, one of the other ones that I find a little bit mysterious, uh, is the story about when Churl goes to the, the 
planet of the teeming masses. You know the one I mean? I remember the description of the planet where he said it looked like it was kind of everything everything was in motion and then he realized it was people or yeah, beings. Every, I can't remember if he said people or not. Yeah, and it's all about them being so numerous, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. their their major skill is being numerous. <laughs> and uh the um the I think that's it's got to be satire of something, right? It's it's like, is it making fun of uh, Russia being, you know, the most big country or China being the most populous country? There's got to be some sort of, because uh, it, it seemed like it, it wasn't, it was like a fable. I need to have the key to unlock the satire, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was pretty, I mean, it was well done. I just, I, I'm, I'm not sure I unlocked the uh, the secret to that, the joke that's being played there. Yeah, yeah, and so that's how I felt about a lot of it. I felt like if I if I go through it slower, I'll I'll be able to consider them more. Uh, yeah, I think. But again, I do think that people will come up with different answers, <laughs> and I think that that's okay. And, you know, I think that that's was the intent. The, so for that for that um, Mandrillion was that the name of the king? I think I, don't I think that was the, the the name of the king of the the people of the many. Um, he builds a perfect advisor for, for, uh, the king and he wants to be paid in gold, but he, he gets ripped off. And so he has to try and get his revenge. Um, and it, it is, I mean, a lot of it is kind of like the way it's, it's, um, (laughs) it's, it's supposed to be science fiction, right? Mm -hmm. But it's really, it's fantasy with science fiction language. Uh, he, he he builds the robot using like a recipe. <laughs> um, yeah. He you know six teaspoons of transistors and stuff. Right, and and the lawyer he makes a lawyer to advise him for the first first time, and then the, uh, it's he's like a soup, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then that lawyer gives him some advice he doesn't like, so he 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 pulls that lawyer apart and then rebuilds another lawyer, uh, but he uses some of the same parts. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> it's just so funny. It's yeah. Very free, freewheeling. Yeah, freewheeling. But uh, really uh, smart. Yeah. yeah, I'm actually eager to go through it again. I will go through it slow. Yeah, and you see all the. I think everything. I don't know. Maybe not everything. But there's so many uh, Lem books on on Audible right now. It's like there's a dozen or so. Yeah, and and I I you know. It, you know, I mentioned that, you know, my interest was piqued by his relationship or non-relationship with the Pope, you know. Mm-hmm. And, but also, I've he- heard people talk about the Siberiad on podcasts, probably, you know, never in depth like we're doing, mm-hmm. but I, I, always in mentioning it. You know, I remember something on Escape Pod where they were talking about the Siberiad. Mm. Um, I sh- you know, I didn't have time to look that up either. But I'd heard it. But then, uh, you know, I read or listened to memoirs in a bathtub and was, was, I had no idea what to make of it. I was going to review it for SFF Audio, but I had no idea what to say. <laughs> I had no idea. I listened to it, Question and I mark. even listened to the first third again, and I was like, what in the heck is going on here? And then um, I mentioned that I talked to that. First? Yeah, it's it's just odd. It, humorous, I guess, yeah, somewhat. Um, but the, the guy that I spoke to, the Lem Scholar... His name is Dr. Pete Swirsky, and I just found uh, a letter that he sent me, or just a quick little note, 
He said, hi, Scott, you'll probably want to get a copy of my book of interviews with Lem, which is called a Stanislav Lem Reader. Alas, Lem, uh, Polemics is a book that he's writing right now. will be out only in late summer, which is um, coming up, because I talked Mm -hmm. to him earlier this year. And then he says, if you found memoirs baffling, and you're not the only one, you could try my Of Literature and Knowledge, which is the name of another book. The last chapter is on that peculiar book in the light of game theory. So, hmm. <laughs> now that I've got that in my head, I should listen to it again and see if I can make out what it is or get a copy of this book of literature and knowledge. You know, um, one of the things I've been, I've been doing this, all, this whole week, I haven't been quite as in contact with the community of Lem, Lem fans, but what I have been doing is reading reviews of the book. Uh-huh. Um, especially if you go to Audible or Amazon, um, the reviews are very strange because, you know, usually with most books you get sort of a certain style of review that you sort of come to expect. But the people who review Lem, they tend to be um, either really, um, you know, they use sort of language that Lem would use or they're really short and they just say Lem equals genius, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm I'm sort of in the second part of that style in that I I'm just sitting in awe and saying wow and and being surprised like wow where did this guy come from you know yeah I'm looking at um, on Audible.com the top review the first line uh-huh. of this top review says this guy gave him five stars imagine a mixture of Borges Calvino Saint Expiry I don't know how you pronounce his name. Pinchon, Douglas Adams, Samuel Beckett, L. Frank Baum, Dr. Seuss, Lewis Carroll, and perhaps a little Philip K. Dick. That's what this is like, sort of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think that's right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it sounds right to me. It's kind of neat, you know, when you find authors that are unique. And, um, you know, we read so many things that are just uh, the same as other things. Yeah, you know, I, I think that that's kind of a mode I've gotten into about the last year and a half is my complete impatience with reading, you know, like another one of these or another one of those. Right. I, I'm just tired of it, you know. Yeah, but when you find fun. somebody like this, it's yeah. you know, I, I plan to read everything I can find. In fact, I got, um, I bought a um, a small lot of books on eBay. Mm-hmm. And one of them that came in, and I wanted to get a chance to look through this before the podcast, but I didn't get a chance. It's a book he wrote called A Perfect Vacuum, and it's full of reviews of books that don't exist. Right. So, um, you know, so some of the chapters are like Les Robinsonades by Marcel Cosquet. So he's got a review of that book. How about Gigamesh? Not Gilgamesh, but Gigamesh. <laughs> and then there's one called Sexplosion. And um, Idiota. You write it, as in you-write, W-R-I-T-E-I-T. Odysseus of Ithaca by Kuno Muljati. <laughs> so anyway, I just wanted to see, you know, what, what on earth is he doing with these? And, He's showing um, off. I mean, this yeah. guy, he, he, he has to. It's got to be... This whole thing is a big show off because it's like I cannot believe that you know the number of of ideas per story 
compared to like you're saying, you know, the regular stuff is, you know, I've got one idea and really it's the idea that was in that other novel from five, six years ago. And I've just changed the, the setting slightly. I'm going to add zombies. <laughs> Not going to be that different, but this, um, yeah, this is, I mean, that, that sort of, that literary thing where they write reviews as a novel or they, I've seen that in other sort of high end, high end literature authors. Yeah, I read, um, one by Gene Wolfe one time mm-hmm. and I read one by Borges once. Right. Yeah. Borges is a good example. Yeah. <laughs> uh, meta, meta, very meta, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, but also I think it's uh, it's the the humor and the the attitude that you do see in Shackley um, about you know the human species is yeah they're not so great but well they they at least do occasionally make funny jokes <laughs> and uh, we'll be we'll be sad when they're gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you? Uh, that reminds. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Tam. I was just going to say, if if you read the book, there's like paragraphs that go on for like at least one one or two pages. It's mm-hmm. like uh, overwhelming when he gets into his uh, wordplay. Yeah, yeah. I, it, there there are digressions uh, aplenty. But uh, I'm but maybe notice they're not 400 page digressions. This is a very short book, right? To most nine hours. But, I think but even over one page paragraphs is kind of unusual to see. Well, these days, I think that's true, but, uh, you know, Dickens famously has very long paragraphs. Right? Oh. Mm-hmm. It's just a, a more modern style to have the dialogue, 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 mm-hmm. uh, I think. And maybe, maybe Jenny would want more uh, character characterization. Yeah, I wanted to. I, I really was curious as to why she would. Uh, but, you know, the thing is, is some people who like Lem don't like this book. And. Uh, if you, here's a, uh, example, a negative review from, uh, Amazon. It says, this book received such great reviews, but I found it incredibly boring, particularly because every story followed the same format and there were no rules to his universe. And it's all, that's all true. It's, there are no rules. Uh, it does follow the same format. And here's the basic story I outlined. Protagonist, let's go visit planet ABC. King of ABC. I have a problem. You need to solve it. It might be be considered a riddle. Protagonists. We'll just create a machine to do it because we can build machines that can do absolutely anything. King of ABC. Alas, you've outsmarted me. <laughs> Protagonists. That was troubling. Let's not go to ABC again. <laughs> That's exactly what does happen every time, right? If you can create a machine that can do anything, then basically the machine and its creator are basically gods and therefore will be nothing interesting in their stories. I think that that's true, except I disagree that it's not interesting. It's just interesting in a very different... It, it doesn't feel like science fiction at all. It has the language of science fiction, uh, and it does some of the things that you're less likely to see. So obviously in regular science fiction, which is everything that, you know, like in... Um, Ringworld, a classic example of hard SF, right? Everything that happens in there uh, that is impossible is hand-wavy away, right? Mm-hmm. 
because he's got this one idea he wants to explore. Well, you can't go faster than the speed of light. Well, that that's explained by the hyperdrive. Um, well, this book says all of language is, is hand wavium, right? So going right back to that very first story where he's arguing with the computer that can build anything, right, uh, about whether it can make, uh, what was it, sodium or not, because sodium starts with an N or something. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the fact that sodium starts with an N um, in Latin doesn't mean it's, it's uh, you know, so the argument about about language, I think, is the whole point of this as a as doing it as a science fiction story. In that we think when we name something, we've understood it, but really, what we're doing is running around the universe. And I think this is actually in one of the stories: running around the universe and labeling everything, trying to make sense of everything. Um, I, I actually, I, I I wish I could quote that line, but. Basically, putting thing in, things into categories and trying to understand things uh, to make sense out of nonsense, to make meaning out of meaninglessness. And if we think we go something like this, if if we turn all the star dust into toilet seats and uh, sunglasses and umbrellas and all the different products that we can turn, you know, the raw materials of exploding stars into, then we'll think we have done something that will make the meaninglessness more meaningful. And when we put labels on words uh, saying, you know, this is, we know what this is, we've got a name for it. Then we feel comforted in a certain way, but the same problems that are in ring world are in here. It's just that here, they're not, uh, lampshaded as well. They're just, you know, <laughs> totally ex- explained just as, as the, as what, as jokes, basically, which is another way of saying, you know, our labels are not that great. Hmm. He says, uh, at the end of this, he says, you could replace Lem's robots with summoned demons and his spaceship with a horse. And the story would not change because there are no rules in his universe. And this is an incredibly unforgiving fault. I think that's right. Which which book is that of this one? This is of this book, yes. Okay. Um, I I think this is this but, is right. Uh, I, I don't know. It, I I understand what he's saying, but I don't see how that applies to this book. You know, I, I what you're saying is about language is very interesting, and I do think that that's there, um, especially in that first story. I think that that's very interesting. But these fables and things, I I don't think that there needs to be rules to this universe. I think that. This is not that kind of book. Well, it's like uh, you're reviewing um, this book using the same yeah. tools that you'd review I, like I a fantasy what, novel. Exactly. Uh, epic it fantasy, is. you know. I, I, and I think that might have been what Jenny's problem was, was, was with, with it was. Because I, 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 until I, you take the book on its own terms... You do have this sort of well, that's impossible. <laughs> sort of, you're used to this mode where you you sort of you're looking at it as as if you were in that world. And what would you do? Well, you can't do that here, right? You can't engage on it on a level of um, uh, this, there's not maybe as much participation in the book as there is in uh, sort of an adventure story because. You, 
there are no rules in that they, you know, anything can happen and everything does happen. Um, so it's, it's, you sit back and laugh rather than jump in and, and, and turn the page yeah. as a, as a participant. I, I almost take it like a droopy cartoon where any outrageous thing can happen <laughs> just for the amusement. A droopy, droopy cartoon like droopy. the, <laughs> the sad dog, right? Yes. I haven't thought of Droopy for a long, long time. Oh. Directed by a Tex Avery. Tex, Tex Avery, yeah. Nice. I, yeah, I think Tex Avery would be a, a good uh, a good animator for the cartoons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, has anybody ever like uh, adapted this to like comics or animation or anything? There is a YouTube video of one story, uh, but. Um, I was looking at the YouTube video yesterday, and and one of the comments was, <laughs> again, these Lem people are pretty funny. Um, he said, "This story's the adaptation is terrible. They use these these saggy pale faces <laughs> <laughs> instead of pristine shiny ones." And it's like, oh yeah, <laughs> he's making his joke. <laughs> um, I get it. Yeah. Uh, I I I think I mean. This, this, when you're reading the stories, you're you're noticing, you know, they're just like people, right? The, these robots are just like people. And then every once in a while, you're reminded, um, one of these kings will say, "I'm going to bury you in the ground and let you rust." And you say, "Oh yeah, they're they're not really humans." Um, and at some point, I think I think it's supposed to be set in the distant future because at some point he says. Um, he says uh, the ancestors of all all robots, right, is uh, so far in the distant past uh, that, yeah, they were supposed to be uh, uh, saggy biologicals or something, but who knows? Who knows, really? I mean, it's, it seems much more likely that we evolved from silicon in a, a silicon sea or something like that. Yeah. But cool, yeah. Unique book. I, I recommend it. Yeah, I think I think it's going to be. I'm going to try and get a. Maybe you can find me a copy on paperback swap. Sure, I can. Yeah, I'll find you one. And um, Tam, yours is illustrated. I assume it's a hardcover. Yes. Okay. Did you get a a paperback version, Scott? Yeah. Yeah. Does it have illustrations? Got a, yeah, it does. It has them in here. And okay. You know that Google Doodle? Did you watch yeah. that thing? It's in exactly yeah, that I, style. So they took the style from these drawings. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't. You know, it, it's a puzzle, right? I couldn't get past the first, yeah, the first uh, puzzle. Let's see. I think I have to have the book in hand. But uh, Steen, Steen was telling me, you know, you can get pretty far into it. I don't see any acknowledgement of who did the drawings here, but uh, I think it pops up when you when you do the bottom bottom right. You click on something, and okay. it says Spanish Law. Oh, there it is, uh, illustrated by Daniel Moroz. M R O Z. Right. M-R-O-Z. With something over the O. Huh. Not in this copy. Oh. Yeah, what is this something's over the O? Why do they do that? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Don't they have the courtesy not to know? <laughs> well, if you if you type in Stanislaw Lem, mm-hmm. um, the uh, the Lem, uh, or the the Stanislaw, I don't know. I always when I when I'm doing it on uh, the website, I just go to the Wikipedia entry because it it does the weird S I think it is hmm. or the I 
Stanislaw Lem. I just say, yep, there's a letter I can't reproduce. (laughs) Yeah, there's a a slash through the L. Huh, cool. I don't know how to do that. Um, if If we're done talking about that book, I'd like to bring up a quick topic. Go for it. Is that all right? Um, Tobias Bikel on May 5th, 2013 put a, um, a blog post, and I'm just going to send it to you guys. I should have mentioned this before, but it, it came up when we were talking about reviews and things. Um, he was talking about a post by a guy named Savage. I can't remember his first name. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's one of the guys that does the Reader's Podcast. Uh, okay. They do mostly mainstream fiction and things. And he was just talking about reviewing and things, and I just wanted to get your guys' opinion, because I feel like I have passed into the place that they're talking about. Let's, Tobias, let's hear. Tobias, Tobias Bikel, um kind of puts out two points. He says, when you get to a point where you've read an amazing number of books, you change. You've read so much that what may seem new or interesting to most, and even to the writer of the book you're reading, is just a variation to you. Your expectations regarding the work change. Yep, yep, that sounds I, right. I totally agree with that. And then number two, um, he says if you're able to either unconsciously or consciously navigate the above, what you're left with isn't a raw initial passion for reviewing what you love, but more a craftsman-like examination of the book for an audience you may no longer really be a part of, but can remember being a part of. Mm. It's easy to slip into this vein by will or luck because it does allow you to keep reading a ton while reporting back on the basics of what you've read. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I think that that's right. Although, um, I think part of the other problem with a lot of reviews, uh, this is not exactly my, rev- my, my problem, but I think a lot of the problem with a lot of reviews is that they're written by fiction writers who are looking, like, if you listen to the ways, uh, to the way Luke reviews books for his podcast, mm-hmm. he he's judging them in several ways. One is just how much fun they are. Um, and another is sort of how did that author create this book and what did he or do, what did he or he or she do wrong in the writing of the book that I can see how it went wrong as a writer mm-hmm. of fiction. Um, and when you are looking at a book as a, as a constructed object rather than as a finished product or not even as a product, uh, as a, as a piece of art, right? I find, I find writers conversations between writers incredibly boring because they do talk about a lot of technical stuff. Uh, uh, they talk about contracts and agents and, and, uh, they don't talk about the ideas that are in the stories. And so, um, well, that's uh, what this podcast is really. It's, it's kind of your expression of how books should be talked about. I I hope so. Yeah. I, I, I I mean, we, we don't so much review books as discuss them, right? That's right. Um, I think, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. This just made me think quite a bit because I felt like I am definitely there. Like, you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, I've grown pretty impatient. You know, I look at, you know, Tam 
has uh, been on the end of this one where um, he and I are both looking at the list on SF Signal of all the new books that are out. Mm. And I'm looking through those thinking, holy cow, out of these 80, I think that um, maybe two of them would be something that I'd be interested in reading. Mm-hmm. And um, what a huge difference that is from when we started SFF Audio. And part of it is because of all of the... I think there's more content available, though. Yeah, there, there's way more content available, and that's a good point, too. But um, I think a lot of it is, you know, well, how many zombie novels can a person read? And then, you know, I shut off on the zombie novels. But again, a good zombie novel I really like. You know, like, um, you know, that one by Alden Bell. Um, yeah. So the... Reapers of the Angels. Yeah, um, the Reapers of the Angels. What I would right. say is, you know, people look at... Uh, I. I like to say, you know, you're reading the books wrong. <laughs> because I say this to my students all the time. They tell me, I say, so what are you reading? And they tell me they're reading a book. And they, maybe they know the title, but they don't know the author. I think you should read by author. Because if you read by author, you're going to get maybe some sort of consistency. Uh, so I, I don't re- recommend Donald Westlake because I like crime fiction. I like... Donald Westlake because he's a great writer and he happens to write crime fiction. But I, I'll read anything he writes. It doesn't have to be about uh, crime fiction. Um, I like Lawrence Block for the same reason. He's a really, really good writer. And his book about writing was really entertaining. And I don't want to be a, a fiction writer, but I loved hearing him write because he's such a good writer. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's true. You know, it's not that I love science fiction stories that I... I I spend lots and lots of time tracking down Philip K. Dick stories. It's because I love Philip K. Dick stories that I spend lots and lots of time tracking down Philip K. Dick. And whether it's a it's a fiction of science or a fiction of fantasy or maybe something else, I'm interested in it because he wrote it because he's a really good writer. So, you know, that's a really interesting point. So it's like you're not a fan. I don't read zombie novels. Yeah, you're not a fan of the genre. You're a fan of the authors. And the thing is, is I'm most interested when writers talk about uh, stuff that isn't, you know, when writers are talking, not writing. Yeah, it has nothing to do about with writing. I understand uh, that. Yeah, I want to know what what books they like to read because if it's a writer I like, like so, if George R. R. Martin is is uh, talking about writers he likes, then I say, oh, I like George R. R. Martin's writing. I'd like to read what he he he's interested because in we have similar tastes. He likes. His writing, I like his writing. (laughs) (laughs) And then that leads me down that path. Uh, But I know there's lots of places that I haven't explored very deeply. um, And that's because I haven't found some way to uh, justify it. So um, the other day, I think Fred Asphere, um, was Fred Heimbaugh? No. Mm -hmm. Is it Fred Heimbaugh? Fred Asphere. Anyways, he was complaining about uh, a book he was reading, but he didn't name it. Uh, yeah, Twitter, and you, I was on the other, yeah, I remember, in fact, I sent him a note, and I said, hey, you don't have to name the book. Yeah, I know, I know, we were having <laughs> a Twitter spat. Yeah. Well, the, the the reason I care is because he's 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 saying, hey, there's this crappy book out here, and I'm like, what's it called? Because I don't want to read that one. I'm looking for reasons <laughs> not to read things, mm-hmm. not for reasons to read things. There's too much to, there's too much to, to um, navigate, and so what I want is like a beacon saying, this one over here, over here. Yeah, and I, you know, I can totally understand a, a writer's point of view of wanting to not 
burn, you know, these buildings down that you're trying to get into. You know what I mean? If you're, if you're, if you're a budding writer, if you, yeah, if you don't want to criticize in name, you don't have to. I, Um, I guess, but the thing is, is, you know, he, he, I'm not going to force him to do it. I can't do that. Oh, sure. But what I can say is that, uh, you know, if you're complaining about something, uh, I want to know about it because I don't want to have to struggle through the same problem. Right. And, and he was, you know, he was saying, I mean, it's Twitter, so you can't say that much, but he was saying something along the lines of, you know, I don't like the way this, this book is sort of doing what it's doing in such a short time, even though it's well-written. And I think, oh yeah, that, that is a big problem out there with books. I read, I read a book and say, this is very well written and it's got a huge giant mistake in it. And so it's much easier for me to write a review of a negative, a, a, a negative review of a book because I can say, yeah, and I, I'm, I don't know. See, you know, since we've done SFF audio, yeah. um, I don't, I have not written that many negative reviews probably because you know, I, I don't consciously sit here and think, well, I don't want to offend somebody. What I what happens though is that if it's clear that I don't like a book, I I don't finish it, and mm-hmm. I don't feel that I should be I should review a book that I don't finish. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah, I so don't review books I don't finish either. Yeah, so I don't. You know, when I read like things um, like Roger Ebert wrote, uh, he has a book called uh, Your Movie Sucks, and I bought it. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I read those reviews and I'm like, wow, you know, um, you know, part of it probably is courage, but most of it is that, you know, I just don't feel like I have the time to read books that I don't like. And um, I, you know, again, I just but don't but notice, uh, I think that you're doing a disservice to other people mm-hmm. if you say there's a book out there that's terrible. I think it's terrible. I'm not going to tell you what it is. No, but what 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 uh, Fred Astaire was saying is no, that it I was know. it was inspiring him as a writer. It, that that was the point of his his tweet. I'm not. I'm not, not it, well, it wasn't a criticism. He wasn't trying to be a literary critic. I think he was saying, "Hey, no. I'm reading this book and I'm getting that um, I can do this type feeling." You know, that was his. I, did, I didn't realize that he hadn't finished it either. Um, and he's. I have no. I have no idea. Yeah. No, he said he 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 was changing his tune uh, as to he, it was getting better or something. Oh, okay. But um, the thing is, is it, like you were saying, if you if you are reading the book, uh, and it's no good, you stop reading it. Uh, that's perfectly legitimate. But then, uh, you know, it does not mean you stop reading that author. Sometimes. In fact, I would say most of the time. If it's an author that I have not read before, then that's usually, yeah, I would have to get a really huge recommendation to try it again, to try that author again. But, yeah, you're right. If it's an author that I really like, you know, like Arthur C. Clarke or somebody who's written a couple of, you know, howlers, I wouldn't, it wouldn't stop me from reading Arthur C. Clarke, yeah. for example, you know. Or Neil Stevenson, well, you know. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the Arthur C. Clarke ones that you're talking about are the ones that, you know, he did when he was, you know, on his deathbed and somebody else came in and wrote the rest of it for him. And sure. yeah. oh, there was no editor and the idea wasn't that great to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Trading on the name to pay for the bills or whatever. But, uh, 
I, I when, when there is so much like yeah that SF Signal list of 180 books that comes out every month, right? Yeah, it's stunning. Not all of them are new. Mm-hmm. Not all of them are new, but a lot of them are. Yeah. Uh, our biggest problem is not uh where to start. It's where to where where with the with the winnow out and say okay, well I'm not reading any of those because they're all garbage. Yeah. A nice cover. Uh, <laughs> stupid, stupid, stupid writing, stupid uh, premise. Um, so uh, positive reviews that tell you nothing, right? Positive reviews that tell you nothing about why it's good are a lot less useful than negative reviews that tell you why it's bad. Because a negative review in this case is what we need to say, you know, this is not important. This is not important. This, it's like, it's like you're wandering through the woods and everybody's, uh, never eaten anything before. And somebody says, Hey, I put this rock in my mouth. Don't eat it. It's no good. You know? Mm-hmm. And I said, what about this, this, this bark? I'm going to try this bark. And I taste the bark. No, I don't want to tell you what this is like. You should try it for yourself. And then we'd find another, you know, walk down the path a little farther along. You know, we really need to, that, that's what reviews are for, I think, is to, in part, to, to make us think about what a book was like, but also to tell us what to go towards. It's to what to avoid and what to, what to head towards. Yeah. From, if you, from if your, from your own. Other- yeah. It, it's an interesting thing, you know, from our own changing perspectives. Right. You know, Absolutely. almost, you know, sometimes it's just a mood. Um, yeah, who knows? It's like, you know, hey, I'm really in the mood to read, you know, a piece of hard science fiction. And then I review something that's not. And I'm like, oh, this fails as hard science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And then you write a review of that and says, oh, that's no good. Yeah. When I, I, it could be perfectly I, I, fine. You know, and, and that's another thing as a as a reviewer. You know, it was interesting that Bukel, uh said, you know, hey, if you're looking. In fact, that, that was a sentence, I think, after where I stopped reading. But here. It says, what those reviews are basically covering is, if you like X sort of thing, this hits X okay with some additional Y and Z, yeah. if you're also into that. Yeah. You know, so that, I, I've written a lot of those, where yeah. I think, yeah, you know, hey, if you like Star Wars, you're going to like this one. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it, well, it's like I read it from a perspective where, you know, I can, I can imagine that a Star Wars fan would really love this. And, right. Um but, you know, I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was, you know, it didn't, you know, you know what I'm saying. But uh, yeah. it's just interesting, you know, after all the reviews we've written um, to kind of get meta and think about reviews. I don't know if it'll change what I do, but, you know, sometimes I don't feel like ever writing a review again. <laughs> because, but, yeah, it, but it really that. is because, of, you know, you get burned out of reading stuff. And you read, like, this this book, Siberiad. And it reminds, this book reminds me of why I love it. Because, you know, I, I, I went through this thing so fast, but I just loved it. And, and I really want to go through it slow and, and write something about it. Um, well, I'm not sure, I, I'm not sure I could write about it other than, you know, to pick out a few little things here and there. But I think that's what you should do anyways, is you say, look at this, isn't this awesome? Mm -hmm. Um, And that is, this is pretty close to a review. Or to compare it to, I think that's the other thing, is compare it to other things that that you found moving and and why. But, it's also because it is a, it's not a novel. We've had this problem in conversation before, is it's very hard to review a book of short stories mm-hmm. um, because 
spending a lot of time writing about a short story and then moving to write another short story by the same author, you tend to um, see the same things. And what you should be doing when you're reading, I think, is is comparing it to comparing it to your life. Right. I mean, you're the one who's reading it compared to your life. So with my students, I, I have a little sign on my wall that says uh, something like this. What can you tell me about this item, story, poem uh, that isn't about your opinion of it? Right. Yeah. I don't care about your opinion. What can you tell me about it? And then what I mean that by that is don't say it was good. <laughs> don't say I hated it because that doesn't tell me anything. When if you say I think this is good because of blah 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 blah, blah and blah blah, then I say oh I see. And what about blah blah? And they say oh well blah 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 blah. Right? It's it's the in the context. What does it mean? What do you think this about this poem in the light of uh, this short story? Or how does this apply to your your life as you've experienced it? Rather than you know, just in the abstract, this is interesting. Um, and I found it entertain me, entertaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yep, interesting. You know, we, we all read a lot of reviews, too. It's It's been interesting, you know, since we started SFF Audio, how Amazon has come up and Goodreads has come up and, and uh, how I have come to use those when <laughs> thinking about buying a book. Yep. It really has become part of it now. Where I'm like, holy cow, that's only got two stars. Hmm. Yeah, and you know what? Votes, nothing, I use, nothing I use more than the negative reviews. Mm-hmm. Because the negative reviews tell you a lot more about about the book than the positive reviews do in a shorter amount of time. Right? You can yeah, get sometimes uh, a negative review makes me want to read it too. It that's says, exactly right. the negative review says this person's an idiot. This is exactly the book I'm looking for. Right? <laughs> yeah. You say this guy, yeah, cyber retarded. I fully agree with Mike. Blah blah blah. Lem is my father. Blah blah. blah. Right. So yes, the fact that some people don't like it doesn't mean it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, that that or, could mean it's very very good. Or someone says this book has too much science, and you're like, hey, yeah. that's what I want. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I I don't believe in this book. Because There's not enough lasers in here. Yeah. The Earth had dinosaurs before people. Yeah, I remember. I remember talking to somebody who said that uh, the Deep Space Nine series had too much talking, and I was like, "Oh, I better give that a second look." And I did, and I ended up liking it more than the other ones. Yeah, I don't remember it having too much talking, but I do remember it being a little more thoughtful than than Voyager. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. A lot less, a lot less laser beams. <laughs> they, they had their 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 laser beams here and there, but yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, in, in retrospect, you know, Deep Space Nine is my favorite Star Trek series, which yeah, I would well, have been surprised to say, for, you know, while it was on. I think in fact, I didn't watch it while it was on for a long period. I didn't get into it until it was pretty much over. It has some weak stuff too, but oh yeah, uh, first season. Yeah, but. Question. Uh, even over the original Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Deep Space Nine is better than the original Star Trek to you? Well, I mean, that's hard to, hard to say, you know, because it's sentimental. As the, the old Star Trek is sentimental. Mm. You know what I mean? I mean, I, how can I not look fondly on those shows? I really can't. But if if I was to think of 
you know, just the overall arc and everything of the show. Um, you know, Star Trek, the original Star Trek probably has, you know, a third of them or something are really good. Yeah, you know yeah, there's a whole lot of good episodes, and there's a lot of sort of, eh. Right, so if I was to go episode by episode, you know, things like, you know, City on the Edge of Forever and the original Star Trek, I mean, those are great. And, they, you know, there's a lot of Star Treks that are written by really good authors, too. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, if I was going to compare that third to all of Deep Space Nine, boy, it would be tough. It'd be a tough call. But the overall point and like you said thoughtfulness of deep space nine is you know i i just like it better you know mm-hmm. when i think you know hey i want to go rewatch something you know i'd rewatch deep space nine i just rewatched all of uh the more recent battlestar galactica oh yeah um and i'd watched it when it was uh you know airing originally so it was quite set far apart and i remember a lot of people were complaining about the ending um, but I, I don't think there's anything wrong with the ending as long as you understand that it was always going to be like that from the beginning, right? It had to have been the way, it, just, you know, when you've got this idea of panspermia that people are not from Earth, you you got to have that idea from the beginning, um, then you're going to have that at the end. But that that's a really well-constructed show, and in, in, in what I appreciate so much, so much about it is that it is finite. There is, you know, people are, people are killed Mm -hmm. and they're gone and people lose eyes and they're gone. And yet, uh, part of the whole thing there is that, you know, some people aren't gone, right? The, the people, the people who look like humans, but aren't because they're not humans, right? They're, they're, uh, robots that look like humans and are indistinguishable from humans at, most times can suddenly come back, but they're not necessarily the same people, yeah. even though they're the same. You know, so the the explorations there are pretty interesting. And um, there was a uh, I I found a a lecture somewhere in iTunes U that was talking about what was done on that show um, about the definition of what a human is, and I, I th- maybe this will tie back to the original book we were talking about. Um, and it was saying that every time uh, someone is confronted on the show with the night, you know, the plot for that particular episode or that particular arc is, is what is human is, is the question. What is human? And someone will propose an answer, whether it be the Adama or Baltar or whoever it is, they propose an answer and that answer is wrong. And there's a new synthesis that comes eventually um, in that. You know, we say he's a Cylon, throw him out the airlock, right? Um, but he's he, he's an implanted, he had implanted memories. He didn't know he was a Cylon. He's been your friend all these years. Uh, are you really going to throw him out the airlock? Well, he's a, he's the enemy, right? He's working against us. Well, yes, but he's he's a feeling human creature just like you, except maybe he's not human, except he can interbreed with you. So doesn't that make you, you know, so it's always coming back to what is, what is us and not being dogmatic or not being, um, uh, fundamentalist in some strict reading, but saying, well, what is the situation and, and how could we look at it? And will that work? And that 
sort of synthesis comes comes actually throughout the show in a number of ways. It's, it comes as a, a bunch of steps, and eventually, uh, you know, the the enemy is the ally, and the enemy becomes uh, indistinguishable from oneself. And I thought that that makes it a pretty damn smart show in that it's it's not just about the uh, laser beams and the the um, I mean. <laughs> Not none of that could happen, right? We don't have jump technology, we don't have Cylon technology, or whatever laser beams they've got. It's 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 more like uh, a fable uh, than most things that are supposed to be mm-hmm. science fiction. Yeah, I, I loved that show. That's interesting. You know, yeah, I would I would rewatch that show too. I really like. I recommend it. It's um, you Did know, you watch Caprica. I actually just was watching the first episode of that, and I'm not sure. I think it got canceled, but I'm not sure yeah, if it's yeah. going to be any good. I don't know but if they finished it or not, or finished. I got, think it went a season. Yeah, but I don't know if they got any closure on what they were doing there. But but uh, one of the things um, that I think you'll like, uh, and Julie would like this too, is you know at the intro in the beginning of the show um, they have this the. The intro scene where they they play the music, uh, somebody singing in a foreign language, and then they 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 show the number of people who are still alive, hum- humanity, and it says you know forty thousand people looking for a place called Earth or something like that, and that number would change. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I spotted somewhere that the that the lyrics to that song, um, are actually Sumerian. I think, or Aramaic. Oh, really? And it's a it's an old poem, like thousands of year old poem. Um, and I thought, oh, that's really clever, right? That they, is cool. They really uh, they put a lot of thought into something that was a very populist and um, popular show, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I've been thinking about picking the first, uh, well, it's like a three hour miniseries to talk mm-hmm. about on good or good story, but. You know, I don't know. I'll have to give that a rewatch and see if there's enough in there to talk about. Oh, there's tons to talk about, Mm -hmm. especially in the light of, um, you know, what it's it it's a it's one of the best shows I've ever seen. I think, and I agree with that. I just don't know if um, in the in the same scale as Babylon Five, except Babylon Five had a terrible first season, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember way back when. You you mailed me your DVDs of Babylon Five, and I watched them, and I mailed them back to you. DVDs? Oh, yeah. Probably. Remember probably those? Was, oh, it can't have been that. <laughs> it can't have been that long ago. They were DVDs. I I VHS them off of TV. Oh, you had you had DVDs, and you sent them to me. Same with Firefly. That's how I watched Firefly. You sent them to me. How kind of me. Yeah, very kind. The gift of kindness. <laughs> yeah. Sam, you seen all this stuff? Um, I haven't seen like all the uh, Battlestar Galactica or um, Babylon Five. Mm-hmm. You, you you have seen Porco Rosso though, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I, that that director Miyazaki. I, I've seen like all his movies. Mm-hmm. I I came across that movie uh, on a Lego page. Somebody had made a. Um, a airplane out of Lego, and I'm like, "What kind of airplane design is this? I haven't seen this before." And then they had a little minifig with a with a pig, and they say, "Hey, it's Porco Rosso," and I'm like, "Who's that?" <laughs> mm-hmm. So, 
He's like a Cam fighting Spooky-watch. soldier exactly. air, airline pilot. Yeah, but he's got like a human girlfriend or something, right? Yeah, they don't they don't show it. Oh, okay. <laughs> what do you mean by it? I, maybe I don't want to know. Yeah, there's nothing like that in it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but okay. Any any consummation of their relationship? <laughs> okay, good to know. <laughs> I think this has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.